Hi, my name is Tommy Allen, and I am the lead pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church, and we are glad you are here. This morning, we are going to be finishing our series on the Jesus Storybook Bible. I can't believe it's been, I think this is number 44. It's been almost a whole year of sermons from the, uh, about the Jesus Storybook Bible. Basically, it covered from Genesis all the way until today, which is the book of Revelation. And so just a couple quick announcements before I begin is that we are indeed meeting on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We would love to have you there. And also two weeks from now, on May 23rd, we are starting a new sermon series uh, entitled Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It'll be about race, ethnicity, and mission. You won't want to miss that either. So with all of that said, I thought I would begin this morning by reading the psalm that we're using in our in-person worship service this morning. We pray the psalms every week, and this is important, uh, not so much as a call to worship, but it's going to come into play as we look at the book of Revelation. And so it's from Psalm 24, and it says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now, here's what I wanted you to catch. Notice how the worship happens here. Someone in the service would have said, who is this King of glory? And the question is asked, not because they didn't know, but because they expected the right response. And so, who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty in battle. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen and amen. How about I pray to start our time together? Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray, in fact, that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. So let me start with a question I often do. And the question is this. And before you answer it, I'm going to tell you a story as well. So the question is this, who is on the throne of your life? Who is on the throne of your life? Now, I'm asking that question. I was asked that question when I was in college almost 30 years ago. I was at Florida State. I became a Christian when I was about 18 and then joined the Army. And then after the Army, went to Florida State. And I was a Christian when I got there. And so I used to go down to the student union. I'd talk to people and chatted up. I love going down there. And one day a guy came up to me and he said, do you have a moment to talk? And I'm like, sure, I got nothing but time. And so we were talking. And at some point he asked me this question that I just asked you, who is on the throne of your life? And I was like, um, what are my choices? And he's like, well, I'm glad you asked. The choices really are you or Jesus. Who would you rather have? Would you be willing to accept Jesus and, and let him be on the throne of your life? And I was like, sure, uh, absolutely. And he's like, that's awesome. And he just started almost to rejoice. And then I was like, yeah, man, I've been a Christian for like four years now. Like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? And he was like, wah, wah, right? <laughs> he didn't get the save that day. But that question sort of nagged at me for a long time. And eventually I learned that it was the wrong question. 
that the question shouldn't be, is Jesus on the throne of your life or are you on the throne of your life? The question is, do you realize it, that Jesus is on the throne of the universe, which includes your life? And so the question is, are you willing to acknowledge that? Are you willing to accept that? Are you willing to recognize his kingship? And so to this point in the, the, the why that's important, it's to this point in the Jesus Storybook Bible, as we followed along in the, the regular Bible, of course, um, we've seen basically the story of creation, fall, and redemption. And in the book of Revelation, John begins, he wraps up the whole thing. Basically, everything that you find in the rest of the Bible is summarized in the book of Revelation. You know, Eugene Peterson would say there's nothing new in the book of Revelation. It's just the Old Testament stuff repackaged and shown to us in a different way from a different perspective. And if you remember, I preached this sermon, uh, or at least this passage, about nine years ago. And as I preached through the book of Revelation, the main theme that sort of arose out of the book of Revelation is that Jesus has won, that Jesus will win in the future. And that means Jesus is winning right now, that, that Jesus is actually on the throne right now. You see, in the book of Revelation, um, it's called apocalyptic literature. And we tend to, to associate the word apocalyptic and even use it in terms of gloom and doom. Be like, man, that was just apocalyptic. You know, did you see that earthquake? It was horrible. That isn't what it me meant originally, at least. What apocalyptic literature meant to do was to pull back the curtain. It was to show you something that no one else could see. And so in the book of Revelation, that's why it's called Reve Revelation, to reveal. It's actually revealing something to us. It's pulling back the curtain and letting us see what's actually going on behind the scenes, if you will, in heaven. And so if you look at... Revelation 1 through 3, it starts out, John has this vision of Jesus, and he basically tells him to take down these seven letters to these seven churches. And there are seven letters. Some of them are encouraging. Some of them are not encouraging. All of them have a little bit of a rebuke to them. And then when you get to the sort of the vision proper, the rest of the book, chapter 4 in the book of Revelation, the first thing that we see is this. I'm going to read it to you. Chapter 4, verse 2 says this. At once I, that is John, was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper, carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with, white, with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, was as it were, a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature and it goes on and on and then it says in verse 8 and it says in the four living creatures each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come and so the very first thing you see in the book of revelation after the letters to the seven churches is this throne and on the throne you you see one seated and we assume that's god himself or christ himself and what's interesting is it says in verse 6 and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal now 
in the ancient Near East, the sea always stood for chaos, right? That's where all the bad stuff happened from the, came from the sea. The, the Leviathan and all the, the other creation myths of other peoples around them, the sea was horrible. It was where chaos came from. It was where evil came from. And notice around this throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. In other words, from the perspective of this throne, everything is in control. Where from the perspective underneath, you know, from the earth's perspective, it might seem out of control. It might seem chaotic. From the perspective of the one who sits on the throne, everything is in control. In fact, the sea is completely like glass. That's because um, what this is talking about in chapter four is God's sovereignty. And when we talk about sovereignty, we tend to uh, confuse it with providence, right? What is providence? The catechism would say that it's God's governing all his creatures and all their actions, that kind of thing. And part of sovereignty is that, but there's another sense in which sovereignty is more personal. In, in other words, kings exercise sovereignty. Providence is about the decrees of God and sort of like the, the hidden will of God that he's making everything. Happen. Sovereignty is actually God's rule or Christ's rule over our life. And it has to do with the one who has the authority to make the rules and has the authority to enforce the rules. But even more than that, he has the power to enforce the rules and to uphold the rules. And when I say rules, I don't mean just laws like the Ten Commandments. I mean like the laws of physics and like the laws of math. Like this one who is on the throne is sovereign. He is the king of all of creation. Now, What's important for us also experientially is he's not only the king of all of creation, not only is he governing all their creatures and all their actions, but he is also sovereign over our salvation. In, in, in other words, he is the king who has the authority to save us and he is the one who has a plan to save us and he has the ability to execute that plan. That's what you see in chapter five. So chapter four is about the Christ and his sovereignty over creation. Chapter five is about Christ and his sovereignty over our salvation, how he is the one who accomplishes it. And so we're going to look at three things today as we look at chapter five. We're going to look at a liturgical question. We're going to look at a tearful realization. And then finally, we're going to look at a surprising vision. So let me read to you, if I can, um, Revelation chapter five. So hear the word of God. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered, so he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, by, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And I looked around and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands and thousands. That's like Greek for like a jillion, right? He says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is Revelation chapter 5. First thing we look at is a liturgical question. Notice in verse 1, John's in the spirit in heaven. He says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God himself, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So he has a seal scroll and, and the hand of God, and it is sealed with seven seals, and there's something written on the outside of it. Now, people... Discuss, of course, all the time. What is in this scroll? You know, what 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 could it possibly be? You know, this that's in this hidden scroll. And people argue that maybe it's the old covenant. In other words, maybe it's the whole Old Testament. Maybe it is the promises of God. I think it's something quite much more simple than that. So, remember when this whole started in, in verse one of chapter four. The angel actually grabbed John. He said, come, I, I'm going to show you the things that are to come. In other words, it's the, the plan of God that is to come right between when John is living into the, to the end of the world. And interestingly enough, um, this also looks an awful lot like what the Romans used to do. In, in other words, if you were, lived in Rome and you wanted to, to make a contract or some kind of promissory note, what you'd do is you write out the contract on a scroll, you would roll it up, you would seal it with seven seals, and you'd write on the outside what it was, of course, so you knew what it was. And the only person who could break those seals was the person who was worthy, and that meant that person is the one for whom the scroll was intended, but it's also the one who had the power to execute what the contract said. In other words, if you don't have the power to execute what the contract says, don't open it. Don't break that seal. Someone else will, will do it. And so that leads here um, to this, what I'm going to call a liturgical question, and I'll tell you why. Look at verse 2. It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, again, he's asking, Who is, who is worthy? Who is, who is able to able to open the seals and who is willing to open the seals and who can execute what is found in this scroll? Good question. And remember, context here is important too, because the, the context here is this big worship service. All the angels are worshiping. They're singing, holy, 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 continuously. The elders are worshiping. The creatures are worshiping. And basically what's happening is that they're always worshiping. In fact, when we gather on Sunday morning to get to worship in person or, you know, online, however you're doing it, we're always joining a worship service in progress. We're always joining the worship of heaven that is continually 
happening. So this is a worship service, which means the question that the angel asks is more than likely actually a liturgical question. And what I mean by that is in the context of worship, there's this call and response. Remember, we, I read to you the psalm at the beginning. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, mighty in battle. There's an answer that everyone knows, that everyone's waiting to repeat. And notice it also says, it doesn't say the angel asked the question with a loud voice. It says he proclaimed with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? He, he is proclaiming something because he expects the answer in all of heaven and all of earth and all of creation seems to know the answer except for John. Everyone except for John. And because of that, um, between the call and response in this worship service, John sort of has a little bit of a breakdown. He has a sort of tearful realization when he hears the question, if he just takes it literally, who's worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? He has a realization that no one is. And notice how he comes to that realization. It's pretty instructive. So to, to the answer to the question, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In verse 3, it says, no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. Now, when he says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, that threefold repetition, that's that one way of saying no one in all of creation, heaven, earth, or under the earth. And if you begin to break it down, it becomes even more moving because if, imagine it from John's perspective. So he's there and he looks around heaven Right? No one in heaven is worthy to break this, the seals. Think about who's in heaven. There are these living creatures. There are myriad upon myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. Not one angel, none of them are good enough to break the seals and open the scroll. How about the 24 elders? Those have to be some good guys, right? They have to be pretty righteous. They have to be pretty awesome. None of them. None of the creatures, none of the angels, none of the 24 elders, no one in heaven is able to open this scroll. No one in heaven is able to execute the plan of God, especially and specifically with regard to our salvation and the complete restoration of the universe. Well, no one on heaven. How about people on earth? So he looks on earth. Is there anyone on earth? Maybe there is some great ruler who could open the scroll and execute the plan of God. Maybe there's maybe Caesar, the ruler of Rome. And we don't have to be Eurocentric. Maybe, maybe one of the rulers of China. China was becoming pretty powerful in the first century. Maybe he looks down. He's like, yo, how about some Aztecs or the Incas or someone else? Maybe there's someone humble that could open the scroll. None. No one in heaven. No one on earth. None of them were able to open the scroll. Not the best, not the brightest, not the, not the best possible version of humanity was able to open the scroll. There are a lot of good people. I mean, we talk about sin all the time. On the other hand, there's some brilliant, magnificent people. None of them were good enough. And what's most moving to me in some sense, he says, I looked in heaven, I looked on earth, and I looked under the earth. And under the earth is a euphemism. It's a, it's a way to say to those who have died. In other words, when you look at those who have died, none of them were worthy. And now think of John's context is the whole Bible. What about Adam? 
Well, that's a no-brainer, right? We're in this position in the first place because of Adam. Was Adam good enough to break the seals and open the scroll? No. How about Noah? Noah's a good guy, but God showed and God showed him favor. But it's a no. How about Moses? Right? Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. He wrote that himself, of course. Was Moses? No, Moses didn't even get to go in the promised land. Moses wasn't worthy to, to open the scroll and, and execute the, the plan of God. How about Abraham? Right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham, on one hand, was shown grace and he was promised all this blessing and he was justified by faith and faith alone. And yet, he was a mess. He was a hot mess if you look at Abraham's life. Was he worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No. I mean, you could go on and on and on. How about Gideon? How about Samson? How about the, any of the judges, right? God sent them to deliver Israel. No, 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 no. How about David? Man after God's own heart. Has to be him. Nope. How about Solomon? Smartest man who ever lived. The most wealthy man who... No. No, you just keep going and going, and it's a no, no, no. Prophets, how about Daniel? How about Isaiah? How about Jeremiah? How about any of these guys? No, there was not one worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. No one on heaven, not angels, no one on earth, not the smartest people, and none of the great saints who have passed were able to open the scroll. And John considers this, and he says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, what is the fundamental mistake that John has done here that has led to his despair? And the answer is that it is also the fundamental mistake that you and I make that leads to our despair. That John looked when he felt, uh, when, he, when he was looking for salvation, if you will, when he was looking for who can execute the plan of God for his life and for all of creation, he looked everywhere except the one place that would help him. In other words, I think it's interesting that because John wrote this, he didn't look at the throne. Had he looked at the throne, he would have seen immediately the one who is worthy, but he didn't. And to the extent that he didn't look at the throne is the extent that he would experience despair. And that's the same for us. Do you feel despair? I mean, as a result of COVID, I think everyone feels a little bit of despair. But how about uh, your inward life? How about do you feel guilt? Do you feel shame? Do you, do, you, do you feel like you need some kind of redemption? And where are you looking for it? If you're looking for it in other people, you will be disappointed because no one is worthy. There's some good people, but they're not worthy like this. They're not worthy enough to save you. They're not worthy enough... To, to completely forgive you and cleanse you, they just aren't. Are you looking to self-help books? Are you looking to pull yourself up by the bootstraps? Any of those things ultimately lead to despair. The only place where you can actually find hope is the throne of God and the Lamb who is in the presence of God. And that's where at least one wise elder directs John's head. So, John, the next thing we see here is that John has a surprising vision. Verse 5 says this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, I love this because, remember, it's in the context of a worship service. And we're going to see that the, the response was coming. Right? Because it says, who is worthy? And then a couple verses later, it says, you are worthy to, to the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. John is weeping. You can imagine this elder. I always picture it's like in church, you know, when a parent whispers over to the, to the child, you know, like, 
don't worry, they're going to be finished quickly, you know, whatever they say. <laughs> and he tells John to stop weeping. He says, behold, or behold means look, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so he, he reminds him of what we've looked at over the course of the Jesus storybook Bible, that the one promised in the Old Testament has conquered. And because he has conquered, he is able to finish the job. He's able to open the seal, open the seals and, and open the scroll and execute the plan of God for the consummation of all things. And what's interesting here is that, John, if you read the book of Revelation, and I pointed this out when I preached through it, um, what often happens is John is told something that he hears with his ears, but when he looks, it's something different. Like, so for example, he says, I heard that there were 144,000 people from the 12 tribes of Israel gathered. And he says, and then I looked and there were a multitude, myriad upon myriad of people, millions and millions of people. And this is the same thing. So he hears the lion from the tribe of Judah, and he hears, that, that's Genesis chapter 49, and he hears that the root of Jesse, that, that this is the root of David, that's his Isaiah chapter 11, that this one is here, and he has conquered. And you would expect, if he said the lion from the tribe of Judah is here, that John would turn his head, and when, what he would have beheld would have been a lion, maybe a big like Aslan like lion with maybe blood on his jaws because he has he has conquered or maybe he would see a king like David in all of his regalia you know with his iron scepter because he has conquered everything and John turns and he looks and notice what he says he says he says and between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What's going on here? That basically what John sees with his eyes is the paradox of the whole gospel. Right? The, the paradox of the gospel is this, is that Jesus um, conquers by giving everything up. He, he wins, if you will, by, by losing. He, he gives us life through his dying. Why, did, why was he slain as the lamb? And the, the answer is pretty clear. He was slain uh, not because uh, he was weak and not because he was foolish, right? It says he actually saw the lamb as if it, who had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, right? Seven is the perfect number that you find in the Bible and especially in the book of Revelation and to have the horns are a sign of power. So to have seven horns mean he has perfect power. To, to have uh, seven eyes means he has complete, he's omniscient, he sees everything. He has perfect vision of everything that is happening. And, and the fact that this, he has the seven spirits that are sent out into to all the earth means he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. So this lamb is not foolish and he is not weak. He has given himself up, not because he is foolish and weak, but because of his great love for you and me. I mean, think about that. All of creation culminates with this vision of this lamb who has actually given himself for you, if you're watching this. 
I mean, the myriads of other people as well, but you and I are included in that if we have put our faith in the one who is before the throne right now. Have you done that? Have you trusted Jesus? The, the, the lamb was slain because of us. He was slain for us. And I don't know if it's more important, but he was slain instead of us. That this lamb was our substitute. And the way he has conquered is by giving his life, not by uh, hurting people or harming people. In fact, just the opposite. He took it upon himself. And so the more we understand this, the more we will be inclined to worship. That's what happens here. Notice what happens next. It says, um, when he sees this lamb is slain, in verse 7 he says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The natural response to understanding what the Lamb of God has done for you is worship. And to the extent that you understand that is the extent that you will worship, not only in church, but with, with every fiber of your being. And, and that's what heaven is like. Heaven is one constant, consistent experience of worship, being in the presence of God and celebrating what he has done for us. This passage always reminds me of a story that happened when I was in seminary. And the Basically, I was in seminary. I worked for a big Presbyterian church, and there was a big charismatic church in town. And some of the pastors started taking some seminary classes at the seminary I attended, and it was Reformed or Presbyterian in its theology. And if you're not familiar with Reformed or Presbyterian theology, it's basically grace-oriented, right? We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, by the work of Christ alone. They were starting to get that, and they wanted to meet with some Presbyterian pastors to sort of get the skinny on, on grace and all these things. And so it was fun for me as an intern to sit there and get to watch this. And the, the, the part that stood out to me is at one point, one of the pastors, charismatic pastors mentioned dancing. And one of the Presbyterian pastors said, wait a second, you guys dance and worship? And I'll never forget that the charismatic pastor said to our pastor, the charismatic pastor name was Danny. He looked at him quizzically <laughs> and said, Knowing what you guys know, how could you not dance? Knowing what you know about grace, knowing what you know about, about the mercy of God in Christ, what he has done, how could you not dance? How could you, how could you keep from it? And I always thought, thought, think about that. I think about that all the time. In fact, I think about that sometimes every Sunday. Because it's like, if this is true, how could I not dance? How could I not rejoice in it? That's why even sometimes now, in our, in I'm still a Presbyterian pastor. You see me put my hand up, you know, slightly. I'm trying to get it, trying to do it. 
Because you know what? Eventually, I think someday in heaven, we're going to be doing a lot of dancing. Think about that. Let me close by reading to you the last part of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It seems appropriate since this is our last time together, at least considering the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the last page says this. It's about Revelation. It says, It was hard to squeeze all John saw into words and fit it onto a page and cram it into a book. And all the words and all the pages of all the books and all the world would never be enough. I am the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew, heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make, our, make it our true and perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be great and it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem just like a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end because, of course, that's how stories finish. And this one is not over yet. So instead he wrote, come quickly, Jesus, which is perhaps really just another way of saying to be continued. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I prayed this morning that you would um, lift us out of our despair if it exists, that you would lift us out of our shame and our guilt by pointing us to the Lamb who was slain and how He is worthy because He has shed His blood for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. At this point in the service, we we actually are singing the doxology now, another temptation for you to come back. And then we are doing a musical meditation. We're not passing offering plates yet. People can give in a box at the back of church if they want. Most people, however, are still giving digitally. If that's who you are, thank you so much. It really does help, obviously, to, to keep our ministry going, especially in the context of COVID. So with all of that said, I thought I would end with the same profession of faith that we are using in worship this morning. And so that profession of faith comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, number 49. And the question is this question, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? Answer, first, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of the Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. And third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Amen and amen. Leave this virtual place with these words, knowing that the Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God will quiet you with his love. And the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Amen and amen. Have a great week.